Hello and welcome to the Global Reinsurance and Insurance Download, or GRID for short. The GRID is a podcast powered by Eames Partnership, in which some of the world's top insurance and reinsurance executives discuss the secrets of their success. This month, we're celebrating Pride by bringing together some of the LGBTQ plus community from within the reinsurance and insurance market and asking them some insightful questions, such as how can companies make themselves more inclusive to this community, whether HR boards should include a specific LGBTQ plus representative and where they stand on the publicly publishing your pronouns debate. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of our contributors for taking part in this series. And thanks in particular to Inclusion at Lloyd's and Link, the LGBTQ plus insurance network, for all of their help and support in bringing this podcast together. In our last episode, we discussed how to avoid your celebratory pride events looking like rainbow washing and provided our listeners with some positive examples of promoting LGBTQ plus inclusion in the workplace. For our final episode in this series, I wanted to open with a potentially thorny subject, pronouns. Many of you will have seen a wave of participation where people were encouraged to publicly display their pronouns as a sign of allyship to those who may wish to be recognised as either non-binary or as a gender which may not have been the one they were born with, or that might be different from others' assumptions. The argument was that by adopting the practice, it would normalise the conversation around pronouns for everybody and encourage a more tolerant, inclusive path in its wake. On a personal note, while I'm a cisgendered woman, I've always made a point of explaining I'm a woman due to my ambiguous sounding first name. So I've never had an issue with the practice. But I have met others who were frustrated by it, seeing it as woke or snowflake or in some other way unnecessary. Where better to start our conversation than with somebody who identifies as non-binary? My heartfelt thanks to Teresa Farrenson, Customer Experience and Integration Leader Aon, for explaining this as eloquently as they do. As a person who identifies as non-binary, um, for me, it's quite a crucial tool to avoid um, embarrassment, you know, uh, and, and mistakes, right? Because if 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 I don't, if I'm not able to show it sort of outwardly um, in terms of my LinkedIn profiles and such, um, then how would people know? Because they're not, you know, they would look at me and maybe if I presented you know a lot more clearly they might kind of go oh this person's trying to tell me something with their outward expression but in the absence of that with a feminine sounding name um and you would your first instinct would be to use the the female pronouns and which is understandable but if I'm now able to signpost to you that that I'm I don't you know, want those to use those pronouns, and I prefer they them. Then, um, then I think it's a very useful tool. Um, and for allies, to, I think it's a simple, like usually a, about a three minute activity for allies to show that 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 they you know stand with me by also sharing their pronouns, um, because then it is just simply normalizes it. It can create a conversation because sometimes, you know, people get the questions, oh, I've seen that in your signature block. Why? What's that about? And you can you can explain what it's about and, and why it, it's, you know, what you're doing is showing solidarity to those people who where their gender pronouns or their gender identity is a lot less obvious or a lot more nuanced. Um, and I think, yeah, why wouldn't you? really it does it does you no harm damage you know 
uh, reputational damage or whatever, it, as far as I can tell, it, there's only good things that that uh, that uh, come from sharing your pronouns. Um, on a slightly different topic, though, I also work in an international organisation, and I found it's quite helpful when dealing with you know colleagues in, in other ge geographies because you know they can have names that you would assume from an English perspective to be male or female, and and they often aren't. You know, I'm dealing with a chap called Gabriel. He's French, and he's he, <laughs> and uh, I would have gone into the conversation assuming that he was a female, unless that you know his pronouns were shared. So I think it it kind of actually has broader uh, broader value outside of just the the obvious you know the gender conversation that is going on around the um, our country specifically and 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 the world in general. So Teresa hasn't always identified as non-binary, and so I wanted to learn more about what the reaction was that they received when they changed their pronouns from she and her to they and them. Nothing negative, which was good. Um, pretty, or everybody pretty supportive. I mean, I've kind of edged towards it. My personal journey, I was like, well, um, I, I felt that I, well, I, I sort of came out as non-binary, you know, relatively recently, only over the probably, well, now I, if I add it up, it's probably about seven or eight years. Uh, always feels like yesterday. But um, so most of the people that I work with have known me as, she, as 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 you know, female using the pronouns uh, she her, and so um, I couldn't expect them in the blink of an eye to to suddenly grasp that particular nettle and 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 change their brains to now refer to me as as other, so as as they them. So um, so I I felt fairly relaxed about the whole thing so I've kind of gently nudged towards it for initially I was using she, the she her they them you know four options and then I've sort of now said you know okay let's just say they them and be a bit more uh a, a bit more positive about it uh rather than being the vagueness of well make up your mind which one are you so um and and also to be fair uh I've also, you know, being the veritable age of 53, I've also very locked into those gendered pronouns, you know, so I make mistakes myself all the time. Um, and so, you know, if I if I recognise that in myself, I have to be more forgiving of others. So I think mostly um, people have been supportive. Um, some people have sort of like, you know, done the alert, oh, I've noticed it, but please forgive me if I make mistakes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all over forgiving people for making mistakes. So, you know, we'll, 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 we'll you know, help, you know, work through that. And what, on that, on that topic of getting tongue tied over people's genders, my, my, your get out of jail free card is just referred to them by their name. So, it, it kind of it can help break that mental cycle of oh my gosh I can't remember what I, I keep on saying her when I really mean them and blah 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 and just say hey Teresa you know I saw you did this the other day and and refer to me with my first name it's it's gonna it's just gonna it's your easy way to to resolve that situation until you get yourself more confident with using the they them pronouns. 
MIC Global Active Underwriter Eric Johnson has also seen his peers elect to be just called by their name rather than pick from a list of pronouns. I don't have my pronouns out um, because I think, you know, I think mostly it's obvious that I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a male. I, I present that way. Um, but what I have seen quite interestingly, uh, I've seen two, two people have this on their pronouns and it says just refer to me by my name. Because that's actually what I'm sorry, someone say Eric, right? Um, but I think if, if you want to do that, I think it can make people feel more comfortable. But on the flip side is if you don't want to do that, then you, you shouldn't feel like you need to either. McGill and Partners partner and head of US Cyber, David Anderson, is very much in the for listing pronouns camp. Here he explains why. This is a great question. And I have a very, very, very simple answer uh, in my mind. Uh, I think that people should be encouraged and welcomed to list their pronouns. I absolutely love it. As a cisgender gay man, I would prefer not to be put in the situation to have to make a guess or make an assumption. So I love the fact that people are doing this. I love the fact that people have the courage to do this. I love it. I also think that for some of our friends in in the world that we live in, for lack of a better phrase, uh, kind of do a little bit of an eye roll or who cares or why do you have to announce it? I think that is a very, very unhealthy way of looking at things, right? So people have different experiences throughout their life, throughout their bodies, throughout their growing up. If they don't want you to make an incorrect incorrect assumption about who they are, I think it's very honest and noble of them to be like, hey, this is who I am, and that's how I would like you to refer to me. Uh, you don't get to assume anything about anyone just by looking at them, or if you do, you're kind of not a nice person. I also think that like people who don't want to, either because they haven't come out yet or they're not comfortable yet or they're not sure yet, which is a possibility, um, shouldn't have to. And I also think that people who just don't want to do it because they don't need to, cisgender, only, you know, there's, it's not a mystery here, generally speaking, um, they shouldn't have to. But above all else, honestly, I think the message is like if someone does that, they should be supported and applauded for it. Like they are making your interaction with them feel safer for you as well. And like you can't lose sight of that fact. Lloyd's chair of Pride and Allies, Adam Triggs, was also a supporter of pronouns being publicly displayed. Yeah, I think this is where education is key. I mean, personally, my view is do it. Um, But I'll be honest, um, it's taken me a while to probably get this kind of mindset personally. uh, And it's probably linked to a kind of change of mindset I've had over my career. So I think if I think about firstly myself, when I first joined Lloyd's, you know, I was comfortable being out as a gay man. Um, Wasn't necessarily the first time. Um, But I didn't really want to get involved in LGBT issues as I saw them. So, um, you know, I wanted to make a name as, you know, that really talented bloke, Adam over in HR, who does a great job. Uh, I didn't want to be known as Adam, that gay guy in HR. Um, You know, that wasn't first and foremost why I was here. But actually, I think there are times where you have to kind of reflect and check your own privilege. So uh, even as a, and and privilege is an interesting word and one, again, that's been around uh, and hot topic over the last couple of years. I think as a gay white man, arguably I've got quite a lot of privilege uh, and it took me a few realize to realize that. And, And actually kind of stepping up to be chair of the network isn't necessarily something that I was doing for myself. Um, you do it for others. Um, you do it to make it a better experience for others and a more inclusive environment. And I think pronouns is exactly the same argument. Um, if you're privileged enough to be cisgender, so, you know, the, the same gender that you were born at, um, lucky you. 
Uh, and you might think, you know, you're a man, you were born a man, you wear a suit to work, you've got a beard. Of course, it's so obvious that you're a man to everyone. Um, I think the point with pronouns is that it's it's not about you. In the nicest possible way, it's not about you. You're doing it because you want to stand up and support inclusion. Um, you're doing it because you want to make someone else's experience better. Um, someone who might be wrongly misgendered, uh, someone who might be outed or has to have the same conversation every time they go to a meeting about their gender and their identity uh, what it does is it normalizes the situation and, and let's be honest it's not the hardest thing to to put some letters on the end of your name to make it better for everyone um, if you've not heard of a company called global butterflies i would say look them up uh, and bring them into your organization so they did a lunch and learn for us at the end of last year uh, and it was brilliant it really was they actually call it a trans and non-binary 101 uh, and we run it for our employees and that was a mixture of obviously lgbt employees but also allies most people in the room were allies uh, people that were coming along to have that safe space to learn um, and we heard from trans individuals and we heard about the kind of experiences and the effects that having pronouns can have and uh, you know it takes two minutes but what was great was kind of after people heard the education and they took the time to educate themselves on the issues and what impact it would have so many people then went off and changed their their pronouns on their signature because the key thing was they now understood why it had impact so i think it's really easy from the outside to think oh you know that's a that's a fad that's a fashion um you know i don't need to do that i think the key thing is a it's not for you uh and b um if you understand how it adds value then then you would rush away and do it straight away so one of the aims of these grid podcasts is to try and provide practical advice or guidance for our listeners and it was with this in mind that we asked our speakers this next question. Would it aid inclusivity at a company if you had an HR representative, either from the LGBTQ plus community or someone who had been specifically identified to act as their ally at a board level? Interestingly, the results were quite mixed. Here's MIC Global's Eric with his take. I would, I would say yes and no. So I'll, I'll say both. So I, I'm, I'm unsure because I would say yes, because you can have that person act as a sounding board um, and, and represent. But then I will say as a no, because that would be me assuming that that one LGBT person, identifying person, has got the same views and mindsets as the entire LGBT community, which isn't, which isn't true, right? So it's a lot to put on that. So I would, I would say what would be better would be that there, if your company is big enough that you've got an LGBT employee resource group that's connected into HR, or if you're smaller, that you partner with a group like Link, the LGBT Insurance Network. And if you're doing recruitment or you're doing some sort of policy review, that you include them. David Anderson, partner and head of US Cyber at McGillan Partners, was all for LGBTQ plus HR representatives, but argued, why stop there? Let's work towards truly diverse HR teams. Yeah, I think it, I think it would be helpful to have a recognized or out, per se, LGBTQ plus representative on the HR board uh, or the larger board of any organization, to be fair. Um, but if, you, if we're just limiting the concept to HR board, I think it's critical. Uh, I think just like you would need a person of color on your HR board, you would need a good, good balance, 50-50 ideally, of women and men. Uh, you, you need to have different experiences to drive human resources policy and human resources decision making. And what you can't have is people making decisions on behalf of others that have never lived in that experience. From a larger sort of global board perspective, yeah, it's definitely important to have that. 
I also think that board levels at, at the top of organizations don't necessarily spend a lot of time in the trenches, so probably wouldn't have as much impact on day-to-day experience of the college, although it certainly does send a positive and aspirational message uh, throughout the organization. But for Ailes Teresa Farrenson, the impact of an HR representative was less clear-cut. Having representation in leadership positions of firms was potentially more impactful, they argued. We've spoken earlier about how diverse teams are, you know, outperform non-diverse teams. Uh, There are studies that show that um, diverse teams produce better innovations, products and ideas, you know, because of their insight into the the communities that they're from and their background. The, and that you know you'll you'll have a better job of selling those into those communities if you've got diverse membership um, or represented membership in in, in your in your teams. Um, furthermore, um, that that the people making decisions about what initiatives to pursue or to set aside invariably have their own bias around. Uh, you know, if they don't see the value of a thing because they they just don't quite get the nuance of why it's important, then they're less likely to progress with an initiative, which means that actually having non-diverse decision makers in, in that space can stifle innovation rather than encourage it. So I think, you know, there are lots of reasons why there should be senior leaders who who are uh, who represent the community, even if they're not, as you said, a member of the community. Um, if there is one in HR, brilliant. But I just I don't see it. it's as critical as having it elsewhere in the, in the leadership of an organisation. To finish off this podcast, I asked our panellists to try and summarise why now was the time for HRDs and boards to take the issue of LGBTQ plus inclusion seriously. And it won't surprise you to learn that their answers were candid, concise and persuasive. Here's Adam Triggs. Yeah, so I think if, if I think about Lloyd's personally, I mean, Lloyd's is a global marketplace. So, um, you know, over the years, we've always changed to, you know, the various needs of society, you know, launching new insurance products, et cetera, et cetera. Inclusion really, I think, makes sure that diverse ideas and diverse, diverse uh, voices are heard. Um, you know, diversity is crucial to innovation. I mean, there's loads of studies that, that will show and back that up. So I think if you're in those senior positions, uh, you have to kind of value the the point of inclusion and then go after really how you make that happen. Um, I think, you know, quite often it's seen as a HR issue. Um uh, it's not a HR issue, but you know, by the same token, it's not a leadership issue. Um, it is, it is a combined issue. It's something that everyone needs to participate in. Uh, it's every something everyone needs to consider in terms of how they play their own part in uh, creating an inclusive environment. So, as I mentioned, you know, it was very easy for me to sit back years ago and just say, you know, I'm, actually, my experience is quite nice. I'm not going to rock the boat or, or get involved. Uh, what's the point? I think everyone can play a part in being an active ally and, and doing something because actually inclusive environments will come about by kind of proactive actions, not just sitting back and, and hoping 
that, that everyone kind of finds their way. So we've all got a stake in it. Um, and I would say, actually, it needs to be something that's towards the top of your agenda. So uh, it has been at Lloyd's for a number of years, which is great. That's not to say that it's perfect. Uh, and that's the whole point. You know, continue to ask the question, continue to get the feedback, and then continue to action plan and think about what more you could do to drive inclusion. But ultimately, it's, it's, it's everyone's uh, issue and it's something everyone should be working towards. And here's David from McGill and Partners. I think this is fundamentally the easiest question to answer without offending anyone or being controversial, right? Um, when I when I got my business degree, one of the most interesting courses I thought in my bachelor's was organizational behavior, right? Which is ethics adjacent, but they're two different courses. Um, and if you're trying to build a company that's profitable one again we're not i'm not in the business of working for nonprofits. i love people that do and they're awesome people we work i work for private enterprise so our first obligation is to be profitable but we have to be profitable in a way that keeps our stakeholders in mind our communities in mind our employees in mind our investors in mind the best way to make sure that your decision making mechanism from the top all the way down to the bottom is that you have diverse people with diverse experiences and diverse worldviews and diverse backgrounds in touch with and part of that decision-making mechanism. Um, plain and simple, diversity and inclusion drives good business and boosts profitably. People from similar walks of life are the foundation of groupthink, and groupthink is the beginnings of cultural de decay and complacency. Enron comes to mind. We don't have to list other companies, right? But if you don't have someone in the room who's got a different experience, who's got a different life story than you, you're not going to get the benefit of them having different problem-solving skills and different experiences. Uh, companies need to be agile and responsive. And like diversity is the only way you're going to be that way in today's market because just like a, a group of the same people or with the same life experiences only have the same toolkit to respond to crises or economic downturns or some sort of issue, right? Whether it's fraud or corporate problems, I, I don't know. But the more different opinions you have, the more likely you are to come to the best solution uh, because your odds of getting to that best solution are increased by having diverse people in the room. It's good business, period. For MIC Global's Eric Johnson, inclusivity is a must when it comes to winning the war on talent, particularly when it comes to the younger generations. He noted that the expectation of today's 20-somethings when it came to being able to bring their whole selves to work was very different to the previous generation, and feeling comfortable to discuss their lives, their political beliefs, and whatever else was important to them was paramount. He also explained that it was important for workplace cultures to embrace difference in opinions and to not shy away from challenging subjects. Being inclusive, he said, doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything. Because that can be really boring. And that's, I think that's utopian. I think to have a really, truly inclusive culture and why it's important is also being able to respect the fact that I might not agree with you on a philosophical point, but I can still work with you, Charlie, and I can be your friend. And we can be colleagues, but you might never agree with, you might say, my lifestyle, but I might never agree with your lifestyle. But as long as we can respect each other and, and I'm going to say, get along, actually, that, again, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, that, that is harder than you think. You know, it's harder to be, it's harder to respect difference because being inclusive doesn't mean that you are all the same. Being inclusive means you can respect difference as well. 
And finally, Aeon's Teresa also pointed to the next generation as the reason why boards need to get serious about inclusion now. So uh, my wife is a teacher running the equities um, group at her school, a secondary school teacher. And she can attest that the young people that are just five or ten years away from entering the workplace expect inclusion and many, many, many more of them are identifying as uh, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Um, so your talent pipeline of tomorrow will be demanding it and expecting it. But also, I think it's not just about talent because those same people are going to be your future customers, suppliers and lawmakers. So, you know, if you want to plan for the success of your organisation in, in the future, I think it will, you know, more critically need to, to be able to meet, meet the needs of, of, the, of the growing demands of the population in terms of servicing them. And, you know, to, to rob um, a line from the um, CII Royal Charter, you know, how can we secure and justify the confidence of the public in our profession if we're not, if we're not meeting, you know, their their servicing their needs and, and demands in terms of products, um, etc. So, um, I think as that I, as I spoke spoke to about earlier, you know, having diverse groups improves innovation and and the success of of, of those ideas. Um, it also improves the reputation of our fine industry in, in, in insurance. You know, I know that we've had a few moments in our recent past where where things have uh, not been all that shiny, and you know, when we've 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 had various regulations that have been enhanced to to um, ensure that individuals are you know behaving appropriately, and reputation is has become um, a measurable feature. Uh, so I think the more that we do to create those inclusive environments, it supports our colleagues, supports our customers, and supports ultimately, you know, the shareholders of your organization, because if you're a blazing success, then they're very happy with you. So it doesn't feel like there's a downside to that. That brings us to the end of the podcast and the end of this Pride series of The Grid. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our guests who have been so candid and open with their thoughts on the subject. I really hope you found it educational, inspiring and enlightening. And if you have, please do share it with your friends, colleagues and bosses. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.